This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. Thank you, Lily. As you can see, Donald Trump has worn me down. It's good to be back in Washington, I suppose. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Donald Trump, say what you will, uh, he has at least brought us back to first principles. I mean, some presidents, like Ronald Reagan, got us thinking about the size of government. And other presidents, like George W. Bush, got us thinking about America's role in the world and foreign policy. Other presidents, like the one I served, Bill Clinton, got us talking about opportunity and responsibility, personal. And Donald Trump has got us talking about tyranny and democracy. <laughs> and that's a good thing. Uh, because, you know, sometimes you don't appreciate something until you're losing it. Have you ever had that experience? Sometimes you don't even know the benefits that you are enjoying until they are fundamentally threatened. And I think that Donald Trump is enabling us to appreciate some aspects of our system, our culture, our social contract, or at least the one we had, and hence my book. 
I don't want to blame Trump. I, I don't think that Donald Trump is the cause of any of this. I think he's the consequence. I think Donald Trump is the culmination of years and years and years of neglect of something that I call the common good. A social contract that we took for granted at some point in our history. I mean, I, I was born, I'm a boomer. I'm an early boomer. Uh, I'm looking around eyeballing some of you. You look like you are boomers, some of you. <laughs> Officially, boomers start in 1946 and up until 1964. There's 70, there's about 77 million boomers. Boomers were the largest generation, but recently the millennials took over. I think millennials are largely children of boomers, but not entirely. Uh, but the boomers have had a, an extraordinary impact on what has happened, obviously, over the last 70 years. 1946 started it. Uh, demographers occasionally puzzle over this. I don't think there's any puzzle over why the boomer generation began. I mean, my father was in the Second World War, and he came home. <laughs> and there was my mother. <laughs> A similar thing happened with regard to Bill Clinton's parents. Bill Clinton, born in 1946. George W. Bush's folks, born uh, George W. Bush, born in 1946. Ken Starr, you remember him? 1946. Donald Trump, 1946. Dolly Parton. <laughs> it's not all bad. Cher, Cher, 1946. I mean, anybody who's anybody was born in 1946. <laughs> I won't ask for a show of hands. But you see, by definition, the people born in 1946 have no memory of a time in America when we were really dependent on each other through the Great Depression, through the Second World War. Our parents understood intuitively what that interdependence meant. And I remember talking to them about it. I remember a code of ethics that has been talked about in terms of the greatest generation, but many of you if I'm eyeballing you correctly, you remember conversations with your parents, not just about history, but really about ethics, about what we owe one another as members of the same society. Citizenship was about that, what we owe one another as members of the same society. Patriotism was about that. It wasn't about who kneels during the national anthem, or who salutes the flag, or secure borders, patriotism was about responsibility to each other. That was the social contract. Every, you know, every organization, Every organization, uh, every group has an implicit social contract. I, I don't mean anything highfalutin here. I mean, even here in this synagogue, there is an implicit social contract. We know what we are supposed to do. We're supposed to turn off our cell phones. Uh, we're not supposed to belch or fart very loudly. We're supposed to be 
reasonably responsible and, and, and at, least, at least considerate of each other. And we also want to leave this place physically as well and as nice as we found it. We don't want to besmirch it. We don't want to dishonor it. In other words, there are things that are expected of us that we take for granted in different situations, in different places. And the same thing in a nation. The same thing with regard to a culture, a civilization, a society. And so, the thing that got me thinking about writing the book was how much we were taking for granted. Now, I should say very quickly some autobiographical details that may fill in some of the blanks. Uh, I came to Washington for the first time in 1967. I came and worked as an intern in the Senate office of Robert F. Kennedy. And it was an extraordinarily thrilling experience. Not that I did very much. I mean, in fact, my assignment was to run his signature machine. And I wasn't even the only one. There were several of us. And this, in those days, the signature machines for senators, you know, there were pens at the end of long arms. And you just made sure that the pens in the long arms that were attached to the grooves that really did trace in rubber the senator's signature were lined up properly when you put in letters that the secretarial staff had written to constituents. That was basically the job, and I had a big pile of letters. And that's what I did all day. It was not glamorous, but you see, seven years before that, I had heard his brother in the inauguration of John F. Kennedy, admonish us not to ask what America could do for us, but what we could do for America. And I suppose in my own little teenage mind, I thought that maybe by running the signature machine, I was doing something for America in a kind of small way, very, very small way. Uh, but I got bored very quickly, as you can imagine. Uh, I got so bored, in fact, that I went in at night and I got stationery that had Robert F. Kennedy on it and I wrote letters to my friends. I typed them. <laughs> you know, dear Mr. Dworkin, congratulations on having the largest nose in New York State. Robert F. Kennedy. And I, you know, I was giving... Um, a talk last night in New York, a book talk on this book tour, and uh, Douglas Dworkin was sitting right there, <laughs> and he actually had that letter on his iPhone. Uh, and then one day, I, um, I remember I was standing in the, in the corridor, uh, the, Elevator doors opened and out came Robert F. Kennedy. I had not really seen him all summer. I mean, I was there, it was, it was mid-August, uh, and he came out and he was surrounded by his staff and people who were chattering and they were doing very, very important things, and I was awestruck. I just stood there and he went by me and he stopped and he looked at me 
And he said, how's the summer going, Bob? Bob. My name. He, he knew my name. And I was, I was, I, I couldn't get out the words. I could not say, fine, Senator. I went, I just went like that. <laughs> and he went on and went down the hallway. But I think after that, if he had asked me to run his signature machine for the next six months, I would have done it easily, or six years. I was so elated. But the point I want to make with you is that there was something fundamentally noble. The word is noble about public service. According to Gallup, in those days, in the late 60s, something in the order of 63% of Americans, when asked, do you think government does the right thing all or most of the time, said yes. Today it's about 22%. I've spent a lot of my days, about half of my adult life, in government in Washington, and I've seen a fundamental change. I've watched the public grow its, in terms of distrust of government. But it's not just distrust of government, it's also distrust of big business. You see almost the same decline in numbers in terms of trust. It's also decline in trust for big banks for even charitable institutions, even universities. Almost all of the major institutions of society, you see this sharp decline from the early or mid-60s till today. And what is that all about? Well, you could say part of it was Vietnam, yes? Some of us baby boomers do remember in our formative years that that war, that besotten war, really did make us think that maybe government was not always as honest as we thought it was. It was not always doing the right thing. That war split us badly in terms of those who were pro-war and anti-war, and many of those splits are still here today with us, culturally and other ways. And then came Watergate, and many of you remember Watergate, and Richard Nixon, uh, some people, when they find me at airports, I don't know if uh, it, this may happen to you, but I, I think it's because I am so sort of obvious in terms of w walking through airports. People come up to me, in fact, they came up to me today. I was leaving LaGuardia, coming down here, and somebody I did not know at all said, came, came up to me and said, what are we going to do? Now, this is a conundrum. I mean, if somebody comes up to you and says, what are we going to do? What's the first thing that you think of? I said, I don't know. <laughs> what are you going to do? Uh, but the, the kind of distress that we see expressed all around us, and the kind of stress, not just distress, but stress that we see around us, uh, really was not all that different to the distress that many of us felt 
during the years of Vietnam and then Watergate. You know, what are we going to do? How did this happen? And that was the first, or those two, were the first cracks in the foundation. Because, you see, when people start saying that, what are we going to do? Or they start saying something that is closely to that, and that is, did you ever think this was possible? Did you ever think anybody would do this? How can they get away with it? See, all of these kinds of questions we ask each other are questions that have to do with breaking the social contract, breaking the norms, breaking the expectations that are not written down anywhere. I mean, there's no sign that says, don't put crayon marks on the walls in this place. We just understand it. If you're president, there are certain things you do and certain things you don't do. At least that was the assumption. If you're a member of Congress, if you're a CEO, I mean, I am dating myself, I suppose, but I remember the times in the 50s and 60s when the chief executives of major American companies not only talked about having responsibilities to their workers and to their communities, but actually acted on it. They sacrificed profits to their shareholders in order to maintain the jobs and the stability of their communities. It was understood that that was part of the responsibility of CEOs of big companies. And then what happened? After Watergate, after Vietnam, what happened in the 70s? What happened in the 80s? There was further disintegration of this kind of social compact. In the economy, I remember this because I had some very unhappy television, well, they can only be described as wrestling matches. Ted Koppel, does anybody remember Ted Koppel? He had a show called Nightline. And I would go on that show and I would debate with corporate raiders like Carl Icahn. And they were very, they thought they were doing wonderful things for the American economy. They were doing wonderful things for themselves, for their pocketbooks. They thought they were great. And American corporations needed to be shaken up. And people who didn't need to be employed should not be employed. And they were fat. And they started using all of the butcher metaphors of modern management. You know, getting lean and mean and cutting to the bone. And I would say on Ted Koppel's program, you know, this is, this is wrong. It's wrong in terms of the social, I didn't use highfalutin language, social compact. I just said, you know, you're going to cause a lot of distress for people in these communities. And you are, you know, it's not, it's not part of what we should be doing. I was probably as inarticulate then as I am right now about this. But in the 80s, we did have corporate raiders who forced, in a way, CEOs to begin to adopt a different understanding of their responsibility, which was, we no longer have responsibilities to our communities or our workers, we only have responsibilities to our shareholders. And maximizing shareholder returns is the only reason for our existence. The most celebrated CEO of that era became Jack Welch of GE. His nomaker was Neutron Jack. How did he get Neutron Jack? Because he blew up the place. 
He blew it up. He, he fired so many people that he got the reputation as being sort of a, a nuclear force, like a bomb, a nuclear bomb. Other CEOs emulated Jack Welch. How many employees can you fire? How many communities can you essentially abandon in pursuit of higher profits? How many unions can you bust in pursuit of higher profits? And I remember in the 1980s, there was, just to make sure you understand that I'm bipartisan in my history, there was a man who I knew a little bit, the head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee named Tony Coelho. Does that name ring any bells here? Uh, maybe you know him, maybe, you're, maybe he's your brother, I don't know. You never know in Washington, you always have to be a little bit careful. But Tony Coelho, Tony Coelho in his capacity as head of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, he raised a lot of money, and he raised a lot of money because he said and reasoned that the Democrats should start drinking from the same trough in terms of political campaign contributions as the Republicans. And the Democrats should do that because the Democrats basically owned the House of Representatives and much of Congress, and why should big corporations pay the Republicans and basically give the Republicans all of this campaign money when the Democrats would be a much better deal. And Tony Coelho led the charge of the Democratic Party into the clutches of big corporations and big banks. And of course, it was a Faustian bargain. Because once you make that deal, it's very hard to figuratively ever again bite the hands that feed you and so, I was the head of policy planning at the Federal Trade Commission in the late 70s. We came up with a very good idea. I thought at the time it was a very good idea, and that was we would bar advertising directed to children of sticky, sugary, awful stuff. Now, the Federal Trade Commission has a very broad very, very broad agenda and very broad authorizing legislation, and we at the time thought it was a really good idea. We didn't know that corporations were becoming so much more powerful, that Washington was filling up with money, and that taking on corporate advertisers of sticky, sugary children's morning, Sunday morning advertising, you're taking on a huge beast when you do that. And so, under Michael Perchuk, the Federal Trade Commission went ahead and came up with this rule, and then Congress shut us down. That was another big lesson for me. How could Congress shut us down? Well, they could shut you down because they could just stop the appropriation. Why would Congress do that? We were just doing our job. Well, no, we were not just doing our job. A lot of major forces in the American economy did not want us to do what we thought we should do, and so they shut down the Federal Trade Commission. Years later, Bill Clinton asked me to be his labor secretary. Now, he first of all asked me to run his economic transition team. I didn't even know what an economic transition team was. 
I was at that time teaching a course at the, got a bunch of courses at the Kennedy School at Harvard, but I had known Bill Clinton for many years. We had gone to graduate school together. Uh, we had gone to Yale Law School together. Um, in fact, at Yale Law School, I should just put a postscript here. Uh, there were, in many classes, it was Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham uh, and Clarence Thomas and I. Can you imagine what an odd <laughs> group we made? But, but we would take courses, and there was one course I remember in particular, uh, a civil and political rights course, which is apropos to the common good. Civil and political rights uh, taught by a wonderful man named Tommy Emerson. And he would ask questions, and the first person with her hand in the air, and almost always with exactly the right answer, was, of course, Hillary Rodham. Uh, the second person with his hand in the air, uh, and half the time with the wrong question, was me. Wrong answer, I should say. Actually, two-thirds of the time with the wrong answer. Um, Clarence Thomas did not say a single word. <laughs> and Bill Clinton was never in class. So you see, there's, there's a certain pattern that one gets into. Uh, but years later, when he asked me to come down and, and, uh, and run the economic transition team, I said I, I would certainly do that. Uh, but uh, Washington had continued to fill up with ever more money. It was no longer the kind of seedy place that I remembered when I had been Robert F. Kennedy's summer intern, or even when I had been at the Federal Trade Commission, it was now filling up with, well, beautiful bistros and restaurants, you know, heavy napkins and heavy, heavy silverware and, and expensive, expensive houses were becoming more expensive. Everything was getting really, I mean, where did all the money come from? Where did the money come from? Washington was changing its character. So I said to Bill Clinton, of course I'd do that, and I came down here in 1992-93. He wanted me to be his Secretary of Labor. I said, sure, I'd be happy to do that. What did I know? Not much. But I learned quickly. You learn on the job under pressure. And what I discovered during the Clinton administration was that it was harder to do many of the things that Bill Clinton had run on, sincerely run on. He really did want to put people first. That was the campaign slogan, and invest in education, and invest in job training, and invest in workers, and make the economy work for most people. Now, you've got to understand something. Because from the beginning of the 80s, actually technically from the late 70s until the 90s, in fact, all the way through till today, the median wage of the typical worker, median wage adjusted for inflation, went nowhere. From 1946 until the end of the 70s, it kept on going up with the size of the economy increases with productivity. It went up in tandem, and then something happened. It stagnated, the median wage. Now, I'm talking about median wage, not average wage. There's a difference. Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball player, basketball player and I have an average height of six foot one. You understand? 
You understand what I'm getting at? There's a difference. Averages, you, when you talk about averages, you know, the, the people at the top always bring up the average. That's why median is so important, because it's half above and half below. So the median wage has stagnated. And I remember talking to Bill Clinton and the economic transition team members at the time, and Bob Rubin was there, and Larry Summers, and Laura Tyson, and a bunch of us, we would sit around and say, well, is there, what, how do we explain the fact that the economy seems to be going up and up and up, and productivity keeps on sending the economy uh, in, a, in a very positive direction? There had been a recession, yes, but we were getting out of the recession. That was the business cycle. I'm talking about behind the business cycle. How do we explain this widening inequality? And nobody had a good answer. In fact, several economists said uh, it's a, just an aberration. It's just a fluke. It's not real. It'll come back. Wages will catch up with productivity gains. But as I took over as Secretary of Labor and went out into the country and talked to a lot of Americans, I began to see something. And that was that they were getting more and more frustrated and angry. Some were despairing. Some communities were abandoned or being abandoned. A lot of the legacy of what started the 1980s was taking a deeper form. And they began to say things to me that I had not heard before. Like, we can't trust politicians. We hope you and Mr. Clinton make a difference, but we just can't trust you guys. Well, fast forward to 2016. By 2016, that we can't trust you had become entrenched in the American electorate. And the notion that the game is rigged was something that almost everybody out there understood intuitively. So when Donald Trump started campaigning, and the most unlikely other person started campaigning in the Democratic primary, somebody who, if you had asked me whether Bernie Sanders would take any state in the Democratic primaries, I would have said, are you out of your mind? I mean, I mean, Bernie Sanders I had known for years, lovely man, but he wasn't even a Democrat for crying out loud. He was, and he was from Vermont, and he was old, and he was Jewish, and he was from a, I mean, how, how could you possibly, I mean, Almost everybody, you remember this, in, in 2014, 2015, all of the betting was on Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. That was the obvious. It was just obvious to everybody. But then when I, in 2015, went out to some of the same places that I'd gone when I was labor secretary, and I'm talking about the Midwest, the Rust Belt, or Kentucky, or North Carolina, or Missouri, or Iowa, I talked with many of the same blue-collar workers that I had known when I was labor secretary, and I said, what are you hearing? What are you picking up? And I kept on getting back from them the surprising result. They said, well, you know, a lot of people, including my own family, were trying to decide between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. And I said, what? 
What do, I, I don't get that at all. I mean, they're two entirely, they might as well be on different planets. How can you say you're trying to decide between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders? Well, what they said back is, both of them are gonna shake things up. They're gonna shake Washington up. Now, what they did not know, what we now know, and I sort of knew then, was that Donald Trump was, you might term him, an authoritarian populist. A populist in name only. Somebody, though, who had very authoritarian impulses. The linguist George Lakoff would call him a strict father kind of politician. And Bernie Sanders was also an economic populist, but a progressive or a democratic small d populist. And what Bernie Sanders was talking about, a revolution, an economic revolution or political revolution, well, that was almost, almost like Donald Trump talking about his own brand of revolution at his rallies. I don't want to engage in false equivalence here. Please don't get me wrong. I don't know whether you're Democrats or Republicans, and if you are Republicans here, I want you to know I respect you. I don't like you, but I respect you. <laughs> no, I like you. I like you and I respect you. But, but uh, you, you, do you see where I'm going here? I mean, the, 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 the anger, the anger is so easily transmuted and transmitted into hate or fear, or paranoia. The demagogues through history have taken this kind of anger, this sense that the game is rigged, and used that anger to accuse them, them, immigrants, or African Americans, or Latinos, or whatever, of being somehow the cause of this. It's not Donald Trump. This has been done many, many, many times before. It's just that, and here I must confess to my frustration, for 30 years I saw it growing. I was Secretary of Labor, I could not do anything about it. I could not get people to listen to me to talk about what I had seen out in the Rust Belt. I remember I used to have these debates with Bill Clinton's pollster. Do you remember who his pollster was? Dick Morris. Remember Dick Morris? And uh, Dick Morris was, was brought in after 1994, after the defeats of 1994, uh, when you remember, uh, at that time, it looked like Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton had just alienated a huge cross-section of America, and Dick Morris was, was, was brought into the White House just as Newt Gingrich was being crowned the new, the new, the new emperor of Washington uh, to advise them on what to do to be relevant again, to get back and to certainly win a second term. And Dick Morris and I would debate, and I'd say to Dick Morris, you know, you, you can't 
have Bill Clinton move to the center and, and just talk about crime and, and, and alienate so many people who are counting on him and, and this welfare reform that is just basically cruel, it seemed to me. I, I just, what I was understanding about ending welfare as we knew it would just be, would just be giving people five years of welfare for their entire lifetimes, but we're gonna have recessions. People need welfare. Dick, Dick Morris, please tell me uh, that it's not worth doing this. And he said back, he said, Bob, it's the only way that the Clinton administration is gonna get a second term. I said, well, what's the point of having a second term if you're gonna have this kind of uh, an agenda that is really not a, an agenda that's gonna change the trajectory of wages and, and the structure of the economy and the direction of helping people, but is actually gonna be hurting people. And Dick Morris would say, well, what's the point of having your agenda if you can't get elected on it? It was sort of a round and round and round we went. We never got anywhere. And so here we are. And I suppose the final question that I want to answer or address before I get to your questions, and I do want to have, get to your questions. We have two microphones here, and in about five minutes, I'm going to end, so get ready. Because <laughs> I'm very eager to get your questions. Um, but the final question I want to address that might be in your mind is, is what about the future? Am I optimistic? Am I pessimistic? Where are we going? What about the common good? Is there ever going to be a common good that is resurrected? Well, four and a half minutes. Oh, but you're already there. You're already ready. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you because it makes me nervous when you're standing there. But, but no, no, don't leave. I mean, you, why don't you sit and then I'll remember you were the first one. So am I optimistic or pessimistic? Can we resurrect the common good? And remember, I'm defining the common good as a set of ideals and principles that bound us together. Now, I haven't spent much time talking about what those ideals and principles are, and I could do that during your question period if you wanted, but the mere fact that we've got to ask ourselves what they are is a very sad testament to me about how far we've come away from them. When I was a kid, I had a course that many of you must have had, again, eyeballing you baby boomers, in high school, junior high school, called civic education. Anybody have civic education? Well, civic education was about profound public morality. It was about what citizens owed each other. It was about ethics but not just the kind of professional ethics you learn in professional school these days about how to avoid getting into legal trouble or public relations trouble. No, it was, it was really a definition of how you behaved as a member of society. It was, and again, without risking getting too partisan, the antithesis of the current president of the United States. So am I optimistic? I am optimistic. Thank you and good night. No, I'm, I'll tell you why, I'll tell you why I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic, first of all, 
because uh, this presidency, by bringing all of this to the fore, by actually making us talk about or forcing the issue of what is it that binds us together, it's certainly not our religion or our race or our creed or our being born in the United States. That was never the defining principle. None of that was the defining principle for national identity in this country, as the political scientist Carl Friedrich once said, talking about the French. He said, to be a Frenchman is a fact. To be an American is an ideal. What bound us together were those ideals in those founding documents, not just the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, but the Declaration of Independence. All men, people, are created equal. The Gettysburg Address, a government by and for and of the people. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, in which he talked about a vision of a country in which the content of your character was more important than the color of your skin. I don't have to tell you about these ideals. You know them. We know them intuitively. About the rule of law, that there is nobody above the law. I'm optimistic because we are beginning again to recognize the importance of these ideals. I'm optimistic because you've got busloads of kids in Florida going to Tallahassee to lobby. <laughs> Have you ever heard anybody as articulate as that young woman? I'm optimistic because I teach in a university and I guest teach in other universities around the country, and I have not seen, I've not encountered a generation of college students who are as committed to making this society better than this generation of college students. And I'm optimistic also because, although again, I don't want to sound too partisan, and this really isn't a partisan statement I'm about to make, but I travel around the country and I am seeing a rebirth of grassroots activism all over the country that is not capital D Democratic Party. In fact, many of these people don't like either party very much. It's a rebirth from the grassroots all over the country. Even I was out in Western Kentucky a couple of months ago and met with a lot of people out there. They're getting engaged, they're getting involved, they want to be involved in politics, they want to take politics back. They want to get big money out of politics. This is important. So I'm optimistic because I think we've come to some sort of inflection point in America. And I think we may see it in the midterms if the Democrats understand what is good for Democrats, but more importantly, what's good for the country, they will see the void and they will link up with some of this energy that is out there. If the Democrats don't, then they better by 2020. If they don't, then what then? Well then, 
we begin to talk about a third party. I think it's dangerous because third parties, as you know, very often historically just pull votes away from one of the two dominant parties closest ideologically to that third party, but the people are rising, folks. And Washington must listen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, I, I promise this young man. You know, I, I, I was just about to say something that was just witty and not necessarily nice. <laughs> Thank you very much for being here. Um, I heard, um, I learned with great, I found it, I found it interesting learning about your work in Senator Kennedy's office. Um, and working the signature machine. What my question is, um, my question is, did you meet any other members of Congress while you were working for Robert Kennedy? Yes, I did. I, I met a number of members of Congress, although they did not deign to talk to a summer intern. <laughs> but I watched them very carefully, and I was impressed with many of them. Uh, I was impressed with them because I though looking through the eyes of a 21-year-old, I probably didn't see many things that might be disillusioning. I saw that most of them cared about the country more than they did about their party, that they really wanted to make a difference. Yes. Um, I want to say I appreciate your resistance reports, and I was wondering if if your initiative needs anything from the public that we can do to help your initiative. Uh, if, if there's anything that you can do to help. Uh, um, your resistant re oh, yes. reports, is there anything that the public, that we can do to Oh, yes. Be well, actually, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> because uh, I started this little nonprofit uh, called Inequality Media that is a, a shoestring operation. And if anybody is interested in contributing you just go to inequalitymedia.org and <clears throat> you just do it. Oh, that, would be, that would be great. Yes. Mr. Reich, my name is Hank Prensky. <clears throat> I work with an organization called GMOM, Get Money Out Maryland, trying to end the corrupting influence of big money in our politics, as you spoke of eloquently. We've been working for five years to overturn Citizens United in the state of Maryland by calling... <laughs> We know that the Supreme Court could, but will not, reverse themselves. We know that a new Supreme Court with new justices will only be more conservative than the current Supreme Court. And we know that Congress is unwilling and unable to bite the hand that feeds it, as you put it. So we're calling for a convention, an amendment-proposing convention, because it will pressure Congress to write that very amendment that we need to deny corporate personhood and to say that the states and the federal government can 
regulate the raising and spending of money in campaigns. However, sir, you as the chairman of the board of Common Cause and your paid staff throughout the country has been fighting our efforts throughout this country. They have been undermining, I, I really hate to say this, they have been lying and they have been misquoting Justice Scalia, they have misquoted Lawrence Tribe, they consistently oppose our efforts rather than opposing the efforts of the Balanced Budget Amendment people or the Convention of States people. They are preventing us from building the movement successfully to become the sixth state to demand an amendment proposing convention. I ask you, sir, could you commit yourself to sitting down with me and my organization anywhere at any time to talk about how we can have a common path together, common cause, and the people who are trying to amend the Constitution. Could we talk together and find a common path? I'd love to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, oh, but, but, by the way, uh, before we talk, though, <laughs> I just want to set the record very, very straight. Hank, my name is Bob. <laughs> um, Hank, just so that we don't leave a foul taste in anybody's <laughs> mouth about Common Cause, which I think is one of the great citizens' lobbies in America. I want to uh, make sure that you understand, all of you, that to the extent that I understand the difference, the question is not, do we want to overrule Citizens United? Of course, of course we do. The question is not even, do we want an amendment? I think we have to have an amendment. We should overrule Citizens United. It's crazy to me that the Supreme Court equates money and speech and corporations and people in a series of cases, not just Citizens United. Uh, no, the issue is an Article 5 convention. That's the issue, is the way to do it through an Article 5 convention. And I don't want to bore you with the details here. Shall I? Shall I do that? No, it's not fair to Hank, because Hank would have to have equal time. But let me just tell you, in fairness, it's nuts to have an Article 5 convention. But let's, we'll talk, Hank, we will talk. Yeah, yeah we'll talk, we'll talk, yes. On a later note, um, first of all, thank you so much for your optimism and giving us hope for the future, because it's been a rough, especially for me, a rough year. But I'm a retired elementary school teacher. Um, also, the grandmother of a three-year-old. And so you were talking about civics education back in the day. Do you um, have any ideas for what we can be doing with children at a young age when they're, you know, formidable years to get them like these kids are in Florida? So things we can be doing? Yeah, you know, I, I have a lot of ideas. I don't know whether we can, I, we probably don't have time right now, but I'd be right, happy to. I, and then you and Hank can talk about the amendment, too. <laughs> don't know. I'd rather but talk I, but, with you. But we'll, we'll, we'll talk. <laughs> Uh, the, and in the book, I, yeah, yeah, we yeah. haven't even had very much time to talk about the book. This is, this is the book that I'm, I came here to talk to you about. <laughs> a lot of what I said tonight is, is in the book, not the autobiographical. I didn't really make this an autobiographical book. So the autobiographical details are not here. But some the substance is here. And the issue of how to regain and rekindle a sense of common good uh, does start with civic education, but it extends in every other direction. I mean, making the truth, understanding that the truth is a common good, and that we all have a 
fundamental responsibility to find the truth and share the truth and correct people. Amen. Uh, that we also have a fundamental, a fundamental responsibility. I, I tell my students this all the time, and I want to get to other questions, so please bear with me. We can talk later. We can talk later. <laughs> but we have a responsibility to talk to people we disagree with. This is one thing that I, I want to emphasize. I tell my students this all the time. The best way to learn something is to talk to people who disagree with you. Because if you're talking only or listening only to people who agree with you, you'll, ne you'll never learn a thing. One of my best friends in the world is a former Republican senator, uh, and we, rep we disagree on everything. I'm, I don't think there's a, a single topic we agree on. <laughs> Uh, but I love the man, uh, and uh, his name is Alan Simpson. Mm -hmm. And and Alan, do you know him? He's about he's about. <laughs> why did you applaud then? He's about six foot seven, and Alan. So we don't even see eye to eye. I mean, <laughs> yes. We have time to take questions from everybody left on in line, but nobody else. And please, everyone, just keep your questions short. Okay, and I'll keep my answers short too. Thank you for your time, Senator. I mean, <laughs> sorry, I wish. <laughs> Freudian slip, excuse me. Your Excellency will be just <laughs> And I really appreciate your energy. Um, I've been in healthcare for f over 40 years, and I've watched the development of what I call the robber barons in big pharma, in big insurance. And I'm wondering, do you see that we're moving in that direction? In yes, the direction we of are, developing robber barons did, did again? Did hear the question? Uh, we are back in the Gilded Age right now. This is the second Gilded Age. We have robber barons in industry. They're monopolizing like mad. They are only, only care about maximizing shareholder returns. We'll do anything, whatever it takes. And we have politicians who will do whatever it takes to win. And the whole notion of whatever it takes-ism is itself a dereliction, a fundamental undermining of the public good. And that's exactly what we have. We have it in pharmaceuticals, we have it in healthcare, but we have it all over. Uh, but the good news, you know, another reason I'm optimistic is you know what happened after the Gilded Age? We had the progressive era. Right. We had Teddy Roosevelt. We had Robert La Follette. We had progressive leaders. We had antitrust enforcement. We had pure food and drug laws. We had a progressive income tax. We had the franchise, the vote for women. We had all kinds of things that could not be done until people were outraged enough that they actually took politics seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Dr. Reich. Uh, thanks for being here. And it's great to hear you discussing the idea seriously of beginning a third party. I was excited to hear you discuss it also before the 2016 election. Uh, I was actually the national political outreach coordinator in the Bernie Sanders campaign, so it was my, uh, thank you, my, my great misfortune to lobby the superdelegates for Bernie Sanders as my job. And that experience taught me that the Democratic Party is so entrenched that it is easier at this point and necessary to do what the majority of Americans are calling for, 61% according to Gallup last year, and start a major new party. Among millennials, it's even higher, 
And so my question to you is, what changed from your perspective in 2016, from when, when Trump won and when before the election you were calling for a major third party? I think that it was, it's actually more important, given that Trump won, that we begin another third party. And also, um, I'd like you to expound a little bit on the conditions under which you think we should start one. Uh, well, I, I, again, I want to preface what I say, and I don't want to give you a very long-winded answer, by, by restating the concern I have, that third parties in a winner-take-all system, this is not a parliamentary system. If we had a parliamentary system, sure, let's have third, fourth, fifth parties, great, they can all be represented. No, we have a winner-take-all constitutional system, which means that if its third party comes about and starts drawing votes away from one of the major parties that is closest to it ideologically, that means you are entrenching the opposite party. And we saw what happened in the 2016 election. I mean, I don't know Jill Stein very well. I know some people in the Green Party. I you know, had some real bad debates. I mean, bad in the sense that they were very, very heated debates with some people who did not want to vote for Hillary after the convention. And I said, you know, if you don't, you're going to end up with Donald Trump as president. And they were furious with me. They still are today. How can you, you know, you, you settle for the second best or the third best and we're never going to have the best. Well, I'm sorry. You know, a lot of them did vote for a third party and look what happened. Over time, well, over time it has no, been a recipe to arrive. But I, I, just wanted to make, I just wanted to plant that flag because that is the big concern. Uh, now, I don't know how many of you uh, read David Brooks the other day on, on a third party. Do anybody read David Brooks? Maybe you don't, that's so great. Um, no, it's not great. I mean, David Brooks is a thoughtful fellow. Uh, but uh, he, was, he was thinking about a, a third party, and it's a very, it, I, I recommend the article. It's an interesting column. Uh, and then uh, there was a, a long kind of discussion of that appearing today in 538. Anybody read 538? Yeah. yeah. So you might, you might want to just look at that, and we ought to have a discussion. <laughs> I Hank love and to. you, and we can, all, <laughs> we can talk about it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. First, uh, thank you for being here. But uh, I'm 19 and from a town northeast of Atlanta called Lilburn. Great place. Uh, but the heart of Trump land. And uh, yeah, a lot of my peers are angry and frustrated on both ends of the spectrum. Uh, a lot of folks on the right are very angry and frustrated with government, and a lot of folks on the left are angry and frustrated with bigotry and everything we see with this administration. And at the risk of beating a dead horse, what do we do? What, what, what should I go back and you know, tell my friends and family the next step is to put us on a path towards the common good? Uh, well, I would say uh, there's some very specific things you can do. My recommendation would be join Common Cause. <laughs> uh, a second thing is you might uh, check in with indivisible.org. Do you know about indivisible? Uh, 
just indivisible. Common cause indivisible. Indivisible right. dot, I think it's org. Okay. Uh, and uh, they have uh, chapters in every congressional district, and what they're trying to do is basically achieve the common good. They are, they are not strictly partisan. In fact, they're trying to be nonpartisan, but they're getting people engaged and involved. They're one of the best and most active grassroots groups out there right now. So get involved with them. Thank you. Yes. So I could ask about how, you know, young people are supposed to stay in, involved in politics after getting abused horrifically on campaigns and other civic things. Um, but instead, I worked in, for the Democratic Party of Arkansas in 2014. I heard a lot of, oh, I love the Affordable Care Act, and I realize that my health care is important, but I just can't vote for people who kill babies. And I know that my mom has some sentiments, and I'm, I'm glad that she votes this way, even though she sometimes has some issues with people that aren't necessarily like us. Um, but she says, you know, if they're going to take away my right to, the right of choice, I would never vote for them. And so I'm fine with her voting for Democrats, even though that's probably not where she would align herself. But how do we deal with people... I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the campaign talk, you never engage a five, so when somebody's like, I'm just not gonna vote for somebody because they kill babies, like, you just, you move on. How do we deal with people who are like that? Um, yeah, well, I mean, we're seeing it a lot with the gun debate now, too. Just, I, I don't want to caricature, certainly not your mom, but people yeah. who have one issue, and they feel deeply about it, and they think it's the most important issue of all, and it is their litmus test for all politics and all politicians, and there are gonna be people like that, and you I think it's important to respect their views, uh, not to denigrate them, and I don't wanna to get too much involved in you and your mom, but <laughs> let me just say that every, every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every, you know, my students, they agonize about going home because they always have an Uncle Louie or somebody <laughs> who voted for Trump or who is just, you know, in the 19th century, and they don't know how to talk to them. And I would say, they're really, they're, there's something that I try to do, and I don't do it well, but it's, I call it eloquent listening. Which is, which means you, 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 you really open yourself up to what they are trying to tell you. And you allow yourself and give yourself permission to possibly be persuaded. And you repeat back to them what they said to you so that they know and you know that you really understand them. And that can be a gateway to communication because once people feel safe in terms of sharing their deepest values, they can then be open to maybe, if not reconsidering them, at least understanding where you're coming from. That's something we're not doing in this country. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. Um, my question is regarding your work on capitalism. I think uh, early in your talk, you spoke about how a uh, big business um, an individual could be a capitalist and um, following still a social contract, being an ethical person. Do you see now that capitalism as it's now 
spoken of in this country as being antithetical to ethics? Uh, no, I, I don't, for the following reason. Uh, there is no place in the world that doesn't practice some form of capitalism. If you define capitalism as the private ownership of property and the free exchange of goods and services. I mean, Sweden, Norway, Finland, China. I mean, this is all capitalism. The issue is what kind of capitalism. The question is how it's organized. Uh, and at the risk of not of blowing my own horn, I, I do urge you to read a book I wrote called Saving Capitalism. Uh, and a Netflix, I put it into, made it into a Netflix, a Netflix documentary. Because what, the, what I tried to get at in that is that the rules of capitalism can be written in a lot of different ways. The United States has a particularly extreme, you might even call vicious form of capitalism, in which inequality is just an outlier. We are way unequal, much more unequal than most other countries. Uh, we penalize the losers in a much bigger way, and we reward winners in a much, much bigger way. And it doesn't have to be that way. We can have a capitalism that is a much gentler and softer capitalism. Uh, but again, you might want to just take a look. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Hi. So um, I'm in numbers data guy, kind of just by experience and interest. So one of the, the things I was looking at specifically for me on, on the election was the actual numbers and going back to um, A, how we elect a president in this country, which is rooted in awful things from our past. Um, and so what concerned me, as because the way I was looking at these numbers, what concerned me more than the 2.8, whatever it was, uh, margin was about the almost 10 million vote sink on the Hillary Clinton side, um, which are the margins that combined that she won by in states that she would have won anyway. These people could have, including myself, could have stayed home and it would not have made a difference. Um, one, and then the other kind of thing on that, so I, I, I was, my the question I guess on that would just be, do you think this, sorry. Um, one of the thoughts I had was like, this could be this, or the millennials as we were talking about, something else for them to take up. It's a huge end game, but um, you know, I, I hope other people would, would see it as, as worth it and I would want your thoughts on that. I also have third party thoughts, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for now as well. Let me repeat what I think I heard the question. I wasn't sure I was, because there's a lot of echoing in this, uh, in this room, but I, I think you were talking about uh, voting and the importance of making every vote count and the fact that the largest party in this country is not the Democrats or Republicans. The largest party really is the party of non-voters. Right. And the question is how do you get people to believe enough in the system and to have enough sense of personal responsibility to actually get out and vote? That and, and um if, if, is it, would it be, would we have a better system if we did elect our president by popular vote? And is that, worth, is that project worth, um, like I said, you know, give it to the millennials or something, you know, to, yeah, to well, there, kind of there, I think that there, I think you're onto something. I yeah. think there is a, uh, and part of the movement that I hope takes shape is a movement for a richer and more robust democracy that would both get people out to vote 
but also end voter suppression, which is growing in all its forms, including Uh, and reform the Electoral College. I mean, you, you, you don't... Um, and again, we don't have too much time, because uh, I want to get to your question, but the Electoral College can be made irrelevant if enough states actually right. yes. go along with the a 270. compact, an interstate yeah. compact, yeah. to award all of their delegates to the winner. And we're not that far away. I know. Uh, that's something that is very practical and we can do. Thank you, yes. Thank you. You mentioned that in the 2016 election we saw the breakdown of political social norms and in that we saw that it wasn't necessarily detrimental to the candidate and may have helped them. And you also mentioned that we saw um, an increasingly divisive style of campaigning. Do you think that um, candidates in general, um, in particular Democratic Big D, um, candidates, committees have an ethical obligation to campaign in a way that's less divisive to abide by social norms or does the ends justify the means looking forward to 2018 and 2020? Uh, well, that's a key important question. I'm glad we're ending with that question because it is a question I'm getting all the time now, more than I've got before because as, as groups begin to gear up for the midterms, particularly progressive groups and democratic capital D groups, a lot of people are saying, well, shouldn't we play by the same rules that they are playing, which is essentially no rules. I mean, anything is allowed, the ends do justify the means. And my reaction is, no, you can't go there, because if you do, you are undermining the very foundations of our entire democracy and what we are trying to achieve. That is, if you think that the ends justify the means, there is no point at which you can divide the ends from the means. And so it's not as if we're playing with one hand tied behind our backs. I remember at the start of Bernie Sanders' campaign where he said he was only gonna take small contributions and donations, people said that's crazy. You can't get there. And look what he did with small donations. So. I think a campaign or a set of campaigns that is run on principles of real democracy and authenticity and truth and some of the values that we've been talking about would win. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you all. Let me, uh, let me just, uh, let me just finish very, very quickly by saying number one, I want to thank you all and thank uh, Politics and Prose, and, uh, but I also want to thank you. I know that many of you in, after a year or in more than a year of this administration, many of you are at your wit's end and are stressed and you are in good company around the country, but I also want you to know that there are very important reasons for feeling optimistic about the future. I've gone into some of them, but there are other reasons having to do with demographics, having to do with the fact that this country is changing fundamentally, and it's changing in ways that will inevitably, inevitably 
alter political outcomes in a direction that I think most of us in this room, I'm assuming on the basis of your body language and applause and things like that, <laughs> uh, would agree with. So don't despair and keep up the fight. Thank you. Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.